All right, good morning to you. We, uh, given the transitory nature of the summer months for people with vacations and travel and all kinds of stuff, we decided to just to do a series of kind of one-offs um, on topics that we think would be both profitable and hopefully interesting to you. And so um, this morning, uh, the topic that I have that's been assigned to me is gender roles, how your marriage preaches in a genderless world. Now Jude's saying to himself, I'm not married, but that's okay because there's stuff in here even for you. Most of you know the name Albert Muller, Al Muller. He, he has a, a daily broadcast called The Briefing. And I pulled a section of The Briefing uh, off of that website yesterday, <clears throat> and I want to read it to you. The, the title of, uh, this is just a portion of it, by the way. Uh, the title of the article was The Death of Truth, The Death of Truth Realized in a Swimming Pool. Leah Thomas, a biological male, this is the subtitle, wins the NCAA Women's National Swimming Championship. And, he says, the entire society is to celebrate. Question mark. Here's what he writes. And again, this is just pieces of it. Uh, I had the date here somewhere if you want to look it up. The, the, whole, the whole program is dedicated to this. He deals with uh, Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown's, you remember the question that was asked to her to define what a woman was. He starts there and then he moves into this, this piece about Leah Thomas and then there's kind of a, a concluding argument that he wraps up with. It's, it's all really good. We just don't have the time for it this morning. But I do want to read to you this section about Leah Thomas because I think it identifies the problem. Not that you need me to identify the problem for you. I realize most of you are very well informed. Um, but here we go. My argument is that one day in the future, he, he, he had written another article where the subtitle was, Resist the Call to Mass Delusion. That's what he was encouraging his readers to do. He says, my argument is that one day in the future, Americans are finally going to wake up and recognize that a great denial of truth had taken place in our time. And that great denial of truth was actually revealed in a swimming pool. Now, what happened in the swimming pool? What happened is that a biological man won the NCAA swimming championship on a women's team presented as a woman. And this is something that had never happened, so far as we know, in the history of humanity before. And you're going to look at the fact that the response to this news is actually going to tell you a great deal about someone's worldview. If someone argues this is to be celebrated, well, you're looking at someone who is all for the revolution. And if someone says this is not to be celebrated, you're going to understand there are some pockets of sanity somewhere to be found in the world. But this revelation came after a season of controversy in which a swimmer, a swimmer who goes by the name of Leah Thomas was competing on the women's swim team for the University of Pennsylvania. This after the fact that the very same swimmer as a man, and he is a biological male, had competed on the men's swim team. All you need to know is that 
Presented as a woman, the swimmer identified as Leah Thomas dominated the swimming competition among women. And this, is of course, this of course means that you have a transgender NCAA women's swimming champion and that means something else. It means that a male won the women's NCAA swimming championship on this event and did so in a way that many in society tell us is not only to be accepted and acknowledged, but it is to be celebrated. Now, the issue here is that Leah Thomas beat other swimmers mostly because the other swimmers are actually women. The participation of Thomas, formerly known, former, formerly known as Will Thomas, on the men's team, now swimming on the women's team, was only possible because of a, an exercise in mass delusion and what can only be defined as ideological corruption. So this mass delusion is the fact that millions and millions of Americans are told, don't trust your eyes. Do not look closely at that photograph. This is a woman because we tell you it's a woman. Because the transgender revolutionaries define this individual as a woman and because a denial of the fact that Leah Thomas is a woman means that you're not only on the wrong side of history, but that you just don't get the entire question of sex and gender. Now, going back to the photograph, all it takes is a single honest photograph in order for the moral point to be driven home very clearly. This is biological reality. There is no question that Leah Thomas is biologically a male. Regardless of hormone treatments, this is a boy who became a man in a man's body. He competed on the men's swimming team, went through male puberty, and all you need, again, is just to look at the photograph even the height of the individual, and you know that we are not looking at fair competition here. We also need to understand something at a deeper level. Leah Thomas, I'm using that name, the name of the swimmer, is a constructed identity. It's now affirmed by the University of Pennsylvania, it's affirmed by the NCAA, and it's affirmed by the cultural powers that be, but Leah Thomas is a man. All it takes, again, is a quick look. He's a confused man, to be sure, but he is a man. The case of this collegiate swimmer reveals nothing less than a deep insanity that is now gripping our culture. That's what it is. It is a communal act of mass delusion. The culture of elites, and that includes the faculty of universities, administrators at those universities, the leaders of organized sports, the media, Hollywood, the therapeutic industry, the political class. By and large, all of these cities, or all these elites, are now basically in lockstep agreement that when you see a man identified as a woman swimming among women in the NCAA swimming event, you're supposed to say, oh yeah, that's a woman, and oh yeah, that's fair. Now, the real harm here is not only the truth, we're being told to accept a lie, but it's also an injury to women and girls who are involved in competitive women's athletics. They have prepared their whole lives for this. They've dedicated hours and months and years of training to this, and yet uh, they, they can do all they can to reach the highest elite levels of performance and competition as girls and women, only to find themselves defeated at the finish line by someone who's a biological male. But there's something else we need to watch, and it's that these elites don't merely demand that this is so. 
they demand that the entire society has to join in this collective exercise in mass delusion. Everyone has to celebrate Thomas's wins as a great achievement of civilization. And one professor named Cheryl Cookie of Purdue University identified as teaching American studies and women's gender and sexuality studies wrote an article published at NBC that Leah Thomas must be, quote, embraced in the history of progress that sports represents and recognized, recognized as the trailblazer that she is. Now again, let's just go back to the simple candid question of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Remember she was asked to define what a woman is. Let's also understand the same question is being asked of the NCAA. It's being asked of the University of Pennsylvania. It's being asked of the cultural elites. And make no mistake, it's being asked of you. Are you ready to say that biology really doesn't matter? Are you ready to say, quote, I will just accept the LGBTQ revolution and in its entirety as if I don't really know what biology tells us? That the XX and the XY chromosomes, and that's where it starts, by the way, not where it ends, that chromosomal difference doesn't make any difference whatsoever, that gender identity and, and actually what's now defined as gender is so plastic and so malleable and so artificial in our society that you can basically, as an auton autonomous individual, declare your gender identity and be whatever you want to be at, at any given time in history. The rest of society supposedly just has to deal with it. I'm gonna stop there. This is a very confusing time to grow up really anywhere in the world, but even here in the United States. There is no such thing as a genderless world. Really, I, I titled this message, How Your Marriage Preaches in a Genderless World, because gender, it was the point that Mueller was just making. Genders become so fluid that nobody even knows what it is anymore. You can identify as, I don't know, I don't know what they're up to. Uh, it's an endless number of things. You can see it, can't you? You can feel it, you can hear it. It's all around you. It's not hard to recognize. In retail business, we saw what happened to, or is happening to Bud Light. We saw, we saw what happened to Target. And yet, mysteriously, there are all kinds of businesses that are still siding with all of this. I think they're banking on the future, that's my guess. They know how these things go. It's just a matter of time until the whole house of cards kind of collapses and everybody joins in. We see it in sports as we just read. We, we hear about it in the government. Every branch of government, certainly the executive branch, is, is pushing it. Um, the judicial branch, uh, again, can you provide definition for the word woman? Uh, no, I won't, she basically answered for obvious reasons, because as somebody seeking to be on the Supreme Court, knowing that there are gonna be all kinds of transgender cases coming to the court, if she were to level an opinion on what a woman was, well, that would probably break her opportunity to be on that court. It's ironic, isn't it, that she's hailed as the first black woman to be on the Supreme Court. We see it in our schools. There is a battle 
to teach the normalcy of LGBTQ lifestyles. There is a quest to see young people transitioned, and it is a quest. It's not really a matter of sort of opening a door of opportunity. It's, it's being thrust at them like this is really something you should consider and think about. We won't even tell your parents. We see it in medicine where they are pushing conversion therapy. We hear it in the language around us. And I, I, think, I, think, I think something we all need to understand is who, whoever, un, whoever, whoever holds the dictionary, whoever gets to define the terms, gets to define the worldview. The fight for language is vital. We've talked about this when talking about the scriptures. We cannot just abandon the word love to a cultural definition of love. Otherwise, you've lost biblical meaning. You've lost God's definitions. You cannot do that with grace. The Mormons will turn it into something else. And so will a licentious person. This battle's always been going on, by the way. This, this, this battle for meaning. It's not just an academic exercise. We, we have to be engaged in the war. That question really is confronting you right now. Are, are you going to engage in the he, she, you know, my, my pronouns are these? Are you going to be calling men women? You've got a real battle on your hands. You've got a lot of things you need to be thinking through. The whole goal, of course, is to, is to reprogram and to erect this facade through language that somehow will conceal truth. That's why I printed out for you the, uh, the gender unicorn, if, if you got that. There's one in the back if you did not. <clears throat> Again, this, this wasn't to be silly. This, this is something that is being taught very proactively in our education system to very young children. So we use fun Crayola colors and we use fun little unicorn images um, I'm not going to go through all of this, but you can see how they are beginning to uh, deconstruct meaning and then beginning to, to build it back up again. You're not born a particular gender. You choose your gender. It becomes your identity as you, you proactively make that decision, and really everybody has to sort of figure it out your children need to figure out what they are and how they identify. They're going to teach them that. Then there's your gender expression, which all of these things are defined below. You can see how each one of them is spelled out, and you can, you can read through all of this again in, in your own time. Notice the, uh, the third one down where it talks about whatever sex you were assigned at birth. The first edition of this was actually a gingerbread man. And that body of a gingerbread man is pretty amorphous. It's, it's got no features really to it, just head, arms, legs. Is it a man or a woman? I don't know. But the problem, obviously, with a gingerbread man was that he was a man. So they renamed him the gingerbread person. But there were still problems with the gingerbread person because... In this section where it talked about sex assigned at birth, it just said biological sex. But they're trying to get away from any concept that biology has anything to do with gender. And so the poor gingerbread person uh, got nixed, and we, we came up instead with the, the gender unicorn who 
uh, doesn't strike male or female in anybody's mind. It's just a blobby thing with a, with a horn on its head. Um, you can see that you can be physically attracted to somebody and emotionally attracted to, 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 to somebody else. They're just they're taking the whole ball of string and just completely unraveling it and trying to, to reprogram you to think in different ways. And I would encourage you to read through that um, at, at some point. One man used this phrase. He referred to this as a transgender catechism. And I think it's a good way for church people to think about this. That's what's happening. We are catechizing a culture to think differently about things that frankly are patently obvious and have been obvious to mankind from the start and beyond that they're true that men are men and women are women. There are, this world is in fact binary uh, to, to use their terminology again. Here's my question this morning because I don't want to talk the whole time. Um, and I, and I, want, I do want to hear what, what you have to say, where, where your head is in all of this. I want to know how you're processing it. How are you navigating it? Are you sitting at home steaming? Are you in a fit of frustration? Are you just depressed and ready to roll over? Are you, are you on this train? What, uh, how are you dealing with it, Richard? I'm you're steaming, Okay. How do you get, have you tried to, is that good or bad? The fact that you're steaming. It's bad. Why? Okay. So there is in the heart of a believer a love for the Lord, a love for the way he does things, a love for his word, and there, is, there can be righteous anger over this, no question about it, but we need to be careful about our anger, don't we? Yeah. Okay. Somebody else. Alan. Yeah, good. Andrew?
Yeah, no question about it. Hence the danger of saying to that young child in the formative ages, when they have no logical, rational defense for what they intuitively know, right? All of a sudden you begin to deconstruct all of that at that point in their lives and, and tell me life, I mean, I, I feel for kids. Tell me that doesn't get just massively confusing. Amen. Joy? Yes. Right. Yep. Good. Ed.
Great point. birthing agent, yes. And that's not, that's not a bad way to go about things. It's one of those, you don't want to avoid it entirely, but if, if there's nothing you can do about it, right, you're not, don't, don't drown yourself in it. That's just a surefire way to depression. You want to set your mind on those things that are true and right and pure and lovely and so on. Yeah, Greg, oh, were you done? Okay. You're so binary, Gregor.
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah, and it's that power play, isn't it? You're you're giving the whole deal at the end is is the is the flower that has blossomed out of out of post modernism. This idea that basically my truth is my truth, and all of you must not only affirm me in it, but you must approve of me in it, which no one can actually do unless you genuinely approve. So what you have to do is fake it. And in order to fake it so that the person feels approved, uh, you're left with utter meaninglessness. It, 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 all the world's a stage, and you must play upon it, right? Shakespeare's right. This is the way this whole thing has gone. It's just turned into this mass hypocrisy and, and this massive deceit. Um, I, I was thinking back with Julie's comment about birthing persons, or birthing, what do you call it? Agents. Um, have you seen the Focus on the Family ad uh, dealing with abortion? Man, it's really well thought through. It's fantastic. It starts out with a woman coming out and she, she's looking at a pregnancy test and she says, honey, I'm so excited. We're going to have a fetus. And then the next stage, you have another couple. She's pregnant and somebody wants to touch her belly or something. She's like, I'm having a fetus. And the thing is, is, is just, it's having a massive impact. It's stirring up a lot, of, a lot of rancor, as you might imagine, because it, ident- it shines a light on this stuff, which is relatively easy to do. And, uh, you know, we just, we need to, to remember, as has already been brought up, these people who are ensnared in this darkness are the mission field. They're not our enemies. And we're not clinging to the America we used to know. There is a grieving process in losing all of those things, isn't there? A, a sense that my life as a kid was just really, really enjoyable. And I look at it today and I think the things that children are being forced to have to deal with is just, it, it's, it's really uh, tragic in so many ways. Well, uh, we could talk and talk. I, I want to keep moving through this so we actually get to the subject matter here, but... Um, Go back with me where we were not too many months ago in the book of Philippians in chapter 1, and I want to remind you of something. What do we do about all of this? How do we address this rapidly changing landscape? And I want to argue, as, as always, that it boils down for the, the Christian living in darkness. You are to be a light. You are to be a testimony for the Lord. And that boils down to two things, the, the, the way you live and the way you speak. Chapter 1 of Philippians in verse 27, do you remember these words? Paul says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's a lifestyle that is commensurate with the gospel, and you need to conduct yourself that way. 
So that whether I come to you and see you or I remain absent, I will hear that you are, here was our first point, you are standing firm in one spirit. That is a defensive posture. That is what we're called to in the church. We are to stand firm on the word of God. We are unshakable, unmovable. We do not go downstream with the current. We stand firm. We are rock solid and we do that together. We stand firm in one spirit. And he says, with one mind, striving together. This is the offensive posture. We are a unified group of Christ's followers, not only here, but with all who are in Christ's church, and we are striving together. We're standing firm. We are defending the truth, but we're also striving out for the faith of the gospel. In other words, we're looking at our current context as a means of preaching Christ. We're not seeking to cower and hide from it all. We defend the truth, we stand on the truth, but we're also going toward those who are in darkness so that we might shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might give them the gospel. We pointed this out so many times, but we can worship in heaven. We can fellowship in heaven. We can do everything in heaven. What we cannot do in heaven is we cannot evangelize the lost. This is why we're here. This is the task that the Lord has given to us. Stand on the truth, strive together for the faith of the gospel, and then he says, this is our third S, that you're, you, we, we are going to suffer together. And we have to arm ourselves with that, as Peter said. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. You're going to face opponents, but you are not to be alarmed by them. The fact that they are opposing you while you stand on the truth and preach the gospel in love to them is a very clear demonstration that they are children of the devil, that they are pursuing Satan's will, that they are going the way of hell. He says, but it's a sign of salvation for you. In other words, this is what Christians do. They stand on the truth. They strive for the sake of the gospel. And when we suffer like this, it is a sign that we are in fact Christ. Because if you remember the book of Isaiah, the Messiah is described as a what? What kind of servant is he? He's a suffering servant. Didn't Peter say to us that he's left us an example to follow in his footsteps? Who while suffering uttered no threats, while being reviled, he did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept looking to the Lord and entrusting himself there as he suffered. Our call is the same, brothers and sisters. This this is the way we engage the culture. We need to stand firm on the truth. We need to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And we need to be willing in the midst of that. We need to understand. And they are hostile, are they not? This is, this is shaking the church a little bit. We're a little bit stunned. And we need to ready ourselves because the day is coming. I, I, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'll tell you this. The U.S. is changing. <laughs> And persecution is, in fact, coming, and things are heating up, and we need to be forearmed. Again, thinking of Peter saying, arm yourselves with this purpose. 
What purpose, Peter? Since Christ also suffered for you, we need to be ready. Are you ready to suffer for this patiently, with joy, with love for God, love for your brother in Christ, and love for the one who's persecuting you? These are all things we know, but we just need to be reminded And what I want to argue this morning in the time we have left is simply this, that one of the best ways to indulge, engage this, not indulge, engage this cultural craziness is to embrace your God-given, God-ordained, God-created gender. To embrace it. And to embrace it not only as an individual, but to embrace it as a couple. To embrace it as a married couple. There has been a battle between the sexes since Genesis 3, right? The way forward is backward. We want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. We want to understand what it is God has made us for, and then we want to embrace that call with all that we have. I I said that, that, that a witness basically boils down to two things. It's the way you live and it's the things that you speak. And I've been encouraging you for years to just speak to the unbeliever what you actually think. Like the way the unbeliever speaks to you about what they actually think. Quit trying to pussyfoot around stuff. The other day I had a guy come to me, a former teacher that I used to teach with a colleague and he started talking to me about taking these trips with his children to to various exotic places because all it started with was a comment that I made about, have you ever had a June like this? (laughs) Never. Isn't this a great June? if, If June were like this here all the time, I mean, this place would be three times as crowded as it is. This is gorgeous. This is wonderful. That's all I wanted to say to him. He comes back with this. We're taking trips with our kids because... This June weather, this change, is clear evidence that the globe is warming. We're all going to perish. Oh, by the way, Greta Thunberg was disproven. You, you, you saw that, right? We were supposed to be dead by now, and we're not. And we praise God yet once again. Summer and winter, warm and cold, right? We praise God that one more climate, uh, and, and you understand this, Why do they always feel like the sky is falling? Well, because there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. They know they're guilty before a holy God, and there's a knowledge. It's always been there. When I was a kid, it was the ice age. And when I got to be a junior higher, it became uh, acid rain. And then it became overpopulation. And then it became, and you can just trace it through, one thing after another. None of them have become true. There was an article I saw one time. (laughs) Owen 41 the record of the climate, you know, whatever it was. Not once has this stuff proven to be true, but we're still, we're, we're, we're changing worldwide. About, I mean, the deception is just massive, massive, massive. And the answer, again, is not to be like some I know who go out in the desert and they just bring all their old tires and send them up in flames just to show that we're not going to buy it. Listen, I like clean water. I like breathing clean air. 
But my friends, be careful. There's so much confusion on this kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm off topic yet again. You need to understand this, that when you just speak the truth, travel with your kids, I think it's great. But listen, you got time, man. You don't have to pack all this in because all this stuff you, you know is, is, is not the way it's really going down. You know the very people who tell you to trust the science. They told you that during COVID. They told you that on global warming. They're the same ones telling you now in the transgender argument, trust, don't trust the science. XX and XY mean nothing. You see, you can say that sort of thing to an unbeliever with a grin on your face, and you can have a nice, friendly conversation about it, but it'll afford you the opportunity then to at least shake their foundations a bit. They're just traveling downstream with a current, aren't they? Stop them and say, have you thought about? I love telling people I've been married 34 years. In this culture, for at least half the population, that's... Shocking. How'd you do it? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> right? You see, you get these opportunities. We're walking around town last night, and my wife is holding my hand. You know how many husbands and wives we see walking around town holding one another's hands? Zero. Zero. But you see, I want to live out this covenant relationship in a way that portrays what is true and what, what Christ has called us to. If I hear another person pound away at the idea of having children as though it's, it's misery and it's, it's the end of your enjoyment in life, I just want to go bananas every time I hear it. So I assert the wonder of family. Just talk about things the way you really think. Again, don't be, don't be a jerk for Jesus. You don't have to get in a fight about it. But just share your heart. Tell them what you think, just like they tell you. And then you need to live in a way. So I'm going to put you again uh, collectively on the, on, on the bench here of the Supreme Court, and I'm going to pose a couple of questions to you. What is a man? Men, you go. What is a... Oh, we should do this the other way. Women. Women, biblically speaking, what is a man? What is a husband? Come on, just bark it out. One word. You just give me something. Come on, go. A leader. Good. Huh? He's a protector. All right? He's a provider. He's a companion. He's not misogynistic. <laughs> right. He is a companion. Joy? He's an example. Great. What's that, Michelle? He's strong? Right, I know. I just, I heard you. I just wanted to say it out loud so Austin could swell up his chest a little bit. What else? He's strong. What else? What are you laughing about, Olga? What do you got to offer here? You got, you got something? Huh? Yeah, he's a shepherd. He's somebody who cares about the flock that's been entrusted to him. Yeah, that's great. Anything else anybody want to stab in there? He's a teacher. Yeah, good. Yeah, we could, we could keep building out this list. 
Men, what's a woman? You want a place in the Supreme Court? You gotta answer this question. Apparently not. Joy? Oh, we're back to men, okay, let's. (laughs) I like it. All right. He's handsome. And he is uh, a lover of his wife. Yeah. What's a biblical woman? Come on, Vitaly. She's a mother, okay. Many women are, yes. What else? A helper. A maker of home. A completer. I like it. She's suitable for you. She's a counselor. She's a wise counselor. What's that? Okay, she's a counselor. Yeah, whoa. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I guess if God had made me a woman, he'd give me the grace to do it. But I, I am, my wife's amazing. Uh, she is a worker, yes. We could go on to build this list, couldn't we? And all of it is clearly laid out in Scripture, the very earliest chapters of Scripture. God made man, and then he made woman. And it was very good. It was complete. Speak up, Gregor. That is true. That's right. And they have to buck against them with real fervor because it's so obvious. That's what makes the whole swimming pool scenario so poignant. You see Riley Gaines standing next to him at the NCAAs. He, he's a third taller than her. He's twice her width. He's standing there with a the gold medal. She's there with a tear in her eye because the, the, the thing that she has strived for was taken from her by a man. Again, the, the irony of it um, and, and she's done a really good job, I think, of, of pointing it all out. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, th- that, that whole thing is, you know, again, we, we don't even have to prove it. Uh, the Williams sisters, the two of the greatest female tennis players of all time, Serena in particular, um, they played, a, they played a man who was, they had boasted at one point that they could beat any man out of the top, outside of the top 200. And so a guy took their offer. I don't remember what number he was, but, uh, you know, he throttled them both. I remember I was coaching at Colfax High School. We had a, we had a girls basketball team that I was coaching. We, f- we went to the state title game. We finished, we lost by three. Arco Arena, 
we were the best team in the state of California, which produces some of the best basketball teams in the nation. We were good. And the girls wanted to scrimmage the varsity boys. I said, no. <laughs> then they wanted to scrimmage the JV boys, and I said, no. The freshmen happened to be coming in to practice after us, and you know what a freshman boy looks like. They said, we want to scrimmage the freshman boys then. Fine, we'll do the freshmen. I said, well, coach, what do you think? You want to do this? Yeah, I want to do this. So I put our girls on the floor with the freshman boys, juniors and senior girls, one of the top two teams in the state, playing freshman boys, disorganized and squirrely as they are, we could not score, not one basket in 20 minutes. Now that is not a slight on women. This is just the way God has made us, right? You see, none of this is subtle and none of it's confusing, frankly, and, 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 and as Greg pointed out, none of this is accepted by those who reject God. And this is the fundamental issue, by the way, is, is this is all a culture shaking its fist at God saying, you know, I've got no strings on me. You have no right to define me even in the most basic and fundamental aspects of my being. The most obvious thing about me is that I'm a man. Anybody can figure that out. But we're going to go on a cultural tour of deception. We're going, to, we're going to all embrace this thing together and agree to deny God by running about and, and denying things that he has said and the way he has made things to be. We all understand this, right? You don't define yourself. You do not define yourself. You're a creature. He's the creator. He makes us, and he makes us in his will to be either male or female. And just in my maleness or my wife's femaleness, we understand a whole lot about what God's call on my life is or her life or your children's lives. Help them to understand that. You see, the world has serious authority issues, always has. It's been very opposed to God. It is shaking its fist, and you remember what Romans 1 said. I mean, this is really the root of it all. You, you, don't, you don't acknowledge God or give thanks. Well, he turns you over, and he turns you over, and the, the end of all of that is exactly where we are. You, you are a culture that is completely depraved of mind, you can't figure out one end, you don't understand the difference between black and white. And that's one of the things for those of us who are tempted to want to recapture the old America I used to know, you need to understand that America is under God's judgment and there is nothing you can do to turn that tide except preach Christ and live a life that's worthy of the gospel in hopes that God might, in his mercy, have compassion on us as a people and, and, and bring about some kind of revival. I gotta get to marriage. How does your marriage preach? What a mess this is. I haven't, I haven't taught Sunday school in a long time. <laughs> How does your marriage preach? Well, listen, 
you've got to understand, first of all, some things about marriage. And I, I need to just kind of push through this <clears throat> at this point. We have, we have uh, 10 minutes here. I'm glad I'm preaching to the choir, so none of this is, uh, is beyond you for sure. Most of you know this. If you've been to a Christian wedding, you understand these things. There are three roots that I want to give you that, that, that feed the relationship between husband and wife that make your marriage a metaphor. Understand this. When God created marriage, we tend to think just because we're sort of self-centered and the Bible talks about the fact that it's not good for man to be alone. There certainly is something in marriage for us, but your marriage fundamentally is not for you. You understand that? It is for you, but it's not at its deepest level for you. It's something, it's just like your life. Is your life your life? No. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God. He has given you an assignment as either male or female, husband or wife, to live out to his glory life as he said it should be lived. And, and these roots that, that go down to produce marriage are, are really sort of the rationale behind marriage. When God created marriage, he created it with the intention of putting his love for his people on display. Christ in the church. That's why Paul calls it a mystery. The mystery isn't marriage. The mystery is Christ in the church. It was the gospel. And Paul is saying, look, this is in Ephesians 5, right? Down verse 30, 31, where he says, I, I, I'm, uh, this is a great mystery, but I'm, I'm referring to Christ and the church. The marriage relationship revealed this great truth of what God was going to do through his son in redeeming a people for his own possession. Therefore, if we can understand what God has done through his son and we can understand the gospel, then we can begin to understand what marriage is all about. So let's begin with that first root real quickly. The first one, that you need to understand that the relationship of husband and wife is rooted in the relationships of the Godhead. The three persons in the Trinity are one in essence and they are equal in nature and, and in perfections, and so it is with husband and wife. They are created in the image of God, and they have this very unique privilege, really, to, to follow after the model that we have in the Trinity. The Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, all the same uh, God of gods, right? They, they, are, they are God. He is God, I shouldn't talk about they are God. That, you get real fuddy in your language here and it's going to mess things up. I need to be careful. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all God, truly God. But what do you have? You do have different roles being played out, different responsibilities. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how, how the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God the Father. Well, wait a minute, I, th I thought... Listen, different roles, different responsibilities. The son does not do what the father does, and the father doesn't do what the spirit is responsible for. Though there are many things that they share together, they are unique three persons in one God, and there are role relationships that are in, involved there that has nothing to do with their inherent worth or, or being or nature. 
So those authority constructs of headship and submission are found in God. You would expect that they be found in marriage, and they are. The second root, uh, let me just, I hate going fast like this. Authority is an issue for the world, but God has built authority structures into every facet of our world, hasn't he? Governing authorities over those being governed. In the church, there are elders and deacons who lead. In, in the family, there's, there's father and mother, and then in, in uh, I'm forgetting one here, What's that? Yeah, you could think of it in the workplace, but the, the, the point is that, look, the 60s, where they put the bumper sticker on about you know, question authority, I understand all of that, but at the, heart of, at the heart of it is this rebelliousness. And one of the things all of our marriages should manifest is not a rebellion, but a, a complementarian. We are complementing one another. My husband does what my husband does and that he does those things because he's a man and God has outlined why he ought to do those things. And then I as a mother and a woman do what I do because I'm a woman and because God has called me to a distinct set of things. And those role, that role relationship says something about God, particularly when in marriage you embrace your roles and you serve one another willingly in those roles. Remember it was Christ submitted to his father who then only spoke what the father wanted him to speak, only did what the father wanted him to do. There was a constant and beautiful submission on the part of the son to his father. Don't think that that's not portrayed, wives, in the way you relate to your husbands, husbands in the way you relate to your wives. We put that triunity on display by our marital oneness and unity, but we also put these roles on display by our embrace of them. So the second root is this. It's the relationship of the husband to the wife is rooted in creation. Adam was created first from the dust of the ground. He was given responsibility and authority to tend God's creation. He was given the commands of God to ensure blessing. He was given the authority to name what God had created, including woman. He was given the command to leave father and mother and to hold fast to his wife, the wife that God had given him. God holds Adam responsible for sin. It doesn't get passed down through history as the sin of Eve. He's the head of his wife. He was responsible. He should have been there. He should have done something. He let her down. And he sinned against God. Eve, on the other hand, was created after man, not simultaneously. He was created from, she was created from man and not from the soil. She was named by Adam. She was created as a suitable helper to her husband to fulfill God's mandate to rule and to be fruitful and to multiply. She was created to follow the sacrificial leadership of her husband. I, I, I intended to bring it in this morning, but Elizabeth Elliot's written a, a great article about what a woman is, and she uses the, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, as, as um, 
her receiving the news from the angel that she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit would overshadow her and she would be pregnant. And just what a, what a thought that Mary's, you remember what she says to him? Behold the handmaid of the Lord, uh, may it be to me as you have said. That's quite a thought for a 13-year-old, perhaps, woman in a culture that could stone you for being pregnant without a husband. And Elizabeth Elliot's point is that what a, what a woman is, is, she, she is she's a woman who receives. She's a woman who gives. She gives of her life. She gives of her body. She gives of her time. She just, she's a giver and a giver and a giver. Elliot puts it so beautifully. Now, the New Testament, of course, reiterates all of this stuff, that Eve was made after Adam and from Adam and for Adam. They were created entirely equal in God's image, equal in value, equal in importance, but distinct and complementary in their roles. And what we need to understand is that Genesis 1 and 2 come before Genesis what? 3. All of this was part of the original design. The feminists out there will say, no, all all of that male headship stuff, that came in after Genesis 3. None of that preceded it. That's not true. This was God's original design. That's why I say the way forward is, is back. And then sin entered in. And the harmonious and joyful submission of Eve was distorted, and she now has a passion to possess and rule man. And the loving leadership of Adam was corrupted and crippled and man became dominated by lazy indifference and by being domineering and commanding. John Piper addresses this. He says this, the fall ruined the harmony of marriage because it twisted man's loving headship into a hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. And it twisted the woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative, obsequiousness, you know what that word means? Me either. It, it, it means to have fawning attentiveness. Oh, sure, honey. That kind of, that kind of thing, trying to, 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 to get what she wants and to move him as she wants by, by putting something on. He says, a, a manipulative obsequiousness in some women and brazen insubordination in others. And the, the point is everything at this point went sideways. But what you need to understand was all this was rooted in creation. This isn't something that just sort of was a a social construct. That's the teaching of our culture, right? That men are this and women are this and all of that, you know, there's just generations in the past. It's all been brought about. A bunch of guys got together on a Tuesday night around, you know, with some beers and cigarettes and just decided, you know, hey, what should we do to these women since we're physically stronger than them? I know. And they started writing down a laundry list, no pun intended, of, 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 of what a woman is and what a woman's supposed to be. No, this stuff all goes back. And this is so important to cling to because both of us in our marriage are laboring to recover what God created and called very good. And as we recover that, again, this is where too many Christians stop short. We just think that when we recover that, what's going to happen is we're going to have a great marriage We are going to have a great marriage as we recover what God intended, but we're also going to be declaring something about God 
to those around us. The third, and everybody's aware of this, marriage is rooted in the relationship between Christ and his church. And the relationship between a husband and wife should reflect Christ's relationship with his church. It's a living picture of a supernatural union between Jesus and his bride. And in that sense, marriage brings glory to God by putting on full display how he relates to his people through Jesus Christ. And it takes not too long to think about, to realize that if you're, if you're gonna put men, brothers, listen, if, if we're gonna put Jesus as, as our role model in marriage, you understand real clearly, don't you? It just puts it in, in, in stark relief that marriage is not gonna be easy, that it's gonna require a death to self, that it's going to require shepherding, as Olga brought out earlier, then it's gonna require all those things that the church finds in her Lord. We're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And women, sisters here, you understand, right, that if your role in this is to be as the church is unto her Lord, then that's gonna require a willingness to 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 look up to your husband, to follow him, to revere him, to respect him, to honor him, to live in submission to him just as the church is to live in submission to Christ. And again, that's not just a a blind willingness to go along. Your ultimate Lord is Jesus. You must follow him first. But there is a willingness on your part to come under your husband and to, to follow and to be his helper, to respect him. And as you do that, you put this glorious relationship on display. You see, this is the pattern that we ought to be pursuing because ultimately in Christ's redemption, he wants to recover the original design. We really can go back to the garden to a great extent in our marriages, and in doing so, we put God on display. We stand firm on the truth, then we live it out, we preach the gospel of Christ in our, out of our mouth and through our marriages. And as we do that, we understand that that will bring about the world's retribution and our suffering. You will be called toxically masculine. Okay. You're going to be told that your marriage is patriarchal and that it's oppressive. Okay. You're going to be told that you're hateful and you're going to be told that you're racist and you're going to be, all kinds of stuff's going to be thrown at you. But beloved, there is joy upon joy in being in the will of God. It is much better, isn't it, to be loved by God than to be liked by men. You do not need to go along with this whole thing and I know none of you are. I I get that. But I do want you to see that the, I'll tell you the, the adjective You ask me what a lot of times my heart's response is to the culture we live in, and, and it's a shame for me even to acknowledge it, but I feel a sense of hopelessness. Like I can't do anything about it. And then it comes down to what Alan said earlier, it just grieves me, it's sad. But Christians don't mope around the house with their tail between their legs. And this, 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 
this thing, sad as it is, should not bring us into some sort of cloudless day where we just walk around moping all the time because, you know, the culture's headed a different direction. We need to stand up and live and live it publicly. Have people, have you had your neighbors over, by the way? Have you cooked them a home-cooked meal, ladies? Have you led men in prayer before a meal with unbelievers? It's, it's a joy. Nothing better. I don't want to make you all uncomfortable, but uh, I, we're just really thankful to have you here. We're thankful for this food, and I want to I give God thanks. So if you bow your heads with me. It's wonderful. They know. May we stand together as a church. May we strive together. May we suffer together. And if we do that together, beloved, the Lord will see fit, I am sure, to use us as a church that will be a light in this community and you will be in your neighborhood. And it will be good for our children because they'll see it lived out and more is caught than taught. And uh, we have every reason to hope because our king is on the throne. Yeah? Yeah. Alan. Yep. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yep. No alarm. <laughs> Read verse, do you got your Bible open? Read verse 29, would you? Yeah, the word there for granted is graced. You've been double graced, graced with salvation and graced with suffering. All those if we suffer with him statements in the scriptures, right? This is just par for the course. Don't steel yourself against suffering because it will lead you to living unfaithfully. Be willing to suffer as God permits by your faithfulness. That's where we want to live. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time and grateful that you are a God of grace, that, Lord, you are not a God of confusion. Your word is clear and your plan is inassailable, unassailable. There is no fault in you. You are wise and full of understanding. You have made things so clear and your word is uh, perfect in all that it teaches. Lord, we are the recipients of the richest blessings and we, we see, as was testified to earlier, that we very easily, had you not been shown us an, an extended compassion, extraordinary mercy, Lord, we, we could be just as blind. We might know only the confusion of those who grope in this world in darkness. Lord, thank you for your mercy in forgiving our sins. Thank you for your kindness in imputing the righteousness of Christ to us and giving us the glories of heaven. But Lord, it's not all waiting for us in the future. You have given to us right now this eternal, eternal quality of life, this 
this heavenly quality of life wherein we can live in light of the truth. We can be who you've called us to be because your spirit indwells us. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have resisted obeying you in our marriages, obeying you in the things that you've called us to do and to be, for giving in to that, that slothfulness or giving in to that rebelliousness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that you would put your glory and your goodness on display in our relationships and the way that we conduct ourselves. In all of this, that the world might know that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and the Savior of sinners. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.